Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Donnie Tapey. I have the privilege of serving as the family pastor here at Antioch, Dallas, which is just such a joy and a privilege, one of the chief joys and privileges of my life, really. And I always hate interrupting this time to bring it back because you guys, everyone's having so much fun and I feel like a joy killer. But we're going to talk about joy. We're going to talk about what God's doing uh, in our church and the vision that he has for us. And I believe today he's got something good for each and every one of us. Um, before we begin, I just want to pray. just wanted to open it up just asking God, because at the end of the day, I'm not the one revealing anything to you. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be the one that would reveal things to your heart that you need to hear. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you love us and that you have made a way for us to come back to you, to be reconciled to you through Jesus, that Jesus, you've made a way. And now through the Spirit of God, we have access to you, our Heavenly Father. We say thank you, God. And Lord, we ask that today as we look at the Scriptures, would you open them up to us? Would you help our hearts to be convicted, changed, uh, enlightened, informed, uh, and help us to, to be uh, realigned with you, God? We love you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Man, so our, uh, many of you know our vision for this year is that the Lord would make us one. Uh, and that's been our prayer this, in, this whole year, since the beginning of the year. And that comes out of John 17. And so our, our collective prayer as a church is, Lord, make us one with you and one with one another so that the world may know who Jesus is. Lord, make us one with you and one with one another so that the world would know who Jesus is. And we've been in the book of Ephesians, which is almost like a template for how to do this. The beginning of Ephesians opens up with how we are made one with God. And then it goes through kind of in the middle section, how we are to be made one with one another. And what's the end of that? That Jesus Christ would be known in the earth, that he would be made known, that he would be pointed to, that all eyes would be on him. And so in Ephesians, just so thankful for this book, the more I spend in it, the more it becomes my favorite book of the Bible, just because of the richness of it. And so we've, we've come to chapter four in Ephesians. So we've, we've gone through a lot in Ephesians. We can't go through everything this morning by way of review, uh, but we have all of our podcasts online. You can go back and listen to those. But we've been, but kind of a big summary is that we've been reconciled to God through what Jesus has done on the cross by grace and through faith. And so now we are, we are literally reconciled, brought back into relationship with God that we are sons and daughters of God. We are members of God's household. And in fact, not only are we members of his household, but we're also citizens in the kingdom of God. And that it's not just for Jewish people. It's not just for the people of Israel. It's for everyone that God has literally created a new humanity. And that's what God's done. So our identity has fundamentally shifted. That we're no longer strangers and aliens outside of the kingdom of God. But now we are members of God's household, his sons, his daughters, citizens of his kingdom brought in with intimacy with God. Isn't that amazing? So that's what we've been going over. And then last week we had a prayer service because kind of we're in the middle of Ephesians and Ephesians is kind of like a mountain. Like the first part is Paul climbing and you're climbing these amazing theological truths. Then you get to the top and he doesn't know what to do, but just break out in prayer. And so he begins praying. God, would you help us get this in us? Would you help us to grasp the height and width and depth of the love of God? Like, we can't do this on our own. So he asks for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to grasp 
this unknowable love of God. Like he says, Lord, help us to know this thing that's unknowable. Would you help us to get it inside of us? Because it's so amazing and so big. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something we can do on our own. Amen? So that's where we're brought to. And so we're at this mountain peak. And now Paul's about to come down, not because it's less exciting, but because there's some work to be done on the back end. That there is, here's who we're called to be. This is our calling. And then he prays for strength from the Holy Spirit. And now, how do we actually do this? How do we actually work it out? How do we actually walk as this new humanity? So uh, our text for today is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 7. So that's kind of where we've been in Ephesians, and here's where we are now. I'm going to read this, and as I read it, I'm going to read it, try to read it slowly. As I read it, just try to take every bit of it in as you can. If you need to close your eyes, that's great too. Sometimes that helps me. And if you need a Bible, there's some in the chair, little baskets uh, in front of you. If you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that with you. It's our gift to you. So Ephesians 4.1 says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So, that's our scripture. When we look at this scripture, I, I, I see three questions that kind of bubble up to the surface that I believe Paul wants to help us to answer. The three questions are this. What is our calling? What is a worthy life? And what is the unity of this, and why is the unity of the Spirit so important? So I'm going to start with that first one. What is our calling? And remember, we just talked about this. So our calling is what, Paul, is what Paul's been dealing with in the first uh, in the first uh, number of chapters, the first three chapters of Ephesians, has been our calling, who we are, what our identity is. So by way of reminder, again, like I said, we're a new humanity. And not only that, but we're a people together, the body of Christ. So Ephesians 2, 15 through 16 says this, his purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of Jews and Gentiles, make one new humanity. And if you don't know, a Gentile is anyone who's not of the Jewish faith. So everyone in this room is included. The entire world is invited into this. It says this, one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross so that anyone who comes to Jesus, if you come to Jesus by faith that you are now in the kingdom of God, you're no longer an outsider. And so all people, and so now we are called to be this new humanity, this family of God, this people that is together the body of Christ. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that the church is referred to as a body of Christ. Like, just like we all have a head and a body and arms and limbs, we are many members. So I may be a hand, someone else may be an elbow or an arm. We're all these different parts that make up one body of Christ. And you can read that. We don't have time to go through everything today. But in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, it talks about us being a body. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says this. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So in, in, in fact, in, in Corinthians, it says, even so much as the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So literally for us, being a body means that we are knit together in a way that's inseparable. We are knit together as the church in a way that's inseparable. That is the truth of the scriptures for us this morning. And it's kind of hard to reconcile sometimes with a little bit of what we see in the world. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So your calling is to follow Jesus in community together with the local church, the body of Christ, in such a way that when people see or experience this community, the divine family of God, they get a taste of who God is, what it's like to know him, and what, it's, what it will be like in heaven when we're in God's presence face to face. That literally, the call of the church, Paul, when he, when he speaks this very, uh, the, the, the very beginning of this passage, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I what? Urge you to live a life worthy of what? The calling that you've received. So what's the calling that you've received? It's to be this divine community of God, to be a son or a daughter of God, living in community that displays the glory of God to the world. That is your calling as a follower of Jesus. So in union with him, it's our vision for the year that we would be in union with God and in union with one another so that what? The world would know who Jesus is. That's right. Thank you, Joe. Lead pastors got the vision down. That's right. But, and think about this, though. Where is Paul right now? If you, if you remember some of the context that we've shared in past sermons, where's Paul? He's in prison. Like, if you were in prison, what would you be writing to close friends? You'd be like, please, sign a petition to get me out of here. Like, you would be concerned for your own welfare. And what is Paul doing? He's thinking about what's most important. He's like laid down his life. He's like, man, of all the things that I could be doing right now, what's the most important? It's for me to communicate to, to these Ephesians, these people who've been brought into the kingdom of God, what's most important, what they need to know more than anything else. And it's that you'd live a life worthy of your calling. That word urge you, I urge you, can actually be translated, I beg you. Like there's a desperation to what Paul's communicating. His desire for the Ephesians is so strong. It's, it's like a, a desire for a family member. When you see a family member struggling in, in sin or in something else or a difficult making bad choices, there's this desire that you have. You just want to see them in health, right? I mean, how many people have a situation like that and that urge within you? You, just, you long for health and wholeness. And that's what Paul's doing here for the Ephesian church. So he says this, and he says, I urge you to do what? To live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. So our calling as followers of Jesus is to live as the body of Christ in community, in, one, in, in unity with one another, and in, unity, and, uh, and in unity with God in order to display the goodness of God to the world. Like that's our calling. But he says, how do we do that? By living a life worthy. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. So what is a worthy life? You know, I was thinking about this question. And Paul has an answer for us. 
But as I think about that, man, everything, the, the world is busy about pitching us the answer to this question. What is a worthwhile life? Every advertisement you see, every TV show that you consume, that we consume, everything in our world is trying to pitch us what's the best life? What's the good life, right? What are the things that you need? What are we to be like? How are we to be in this world? What's the best way to go about things? And that's actually, I feel like there's two fundamental questions that the world tries to pitch us. And it's two things. What are we to be like? How are we to act in this world? And who are we unified with? Are you with us or are you against us? It's like the world wants to know what you're for or what you're against. There's so many groups in the world and everyone wants to know, hey, who, who are you with? I mean, our country right now is an example of that, of groups kind of allying against one another to try to determine, hey, who are you with? What, what do you believe? What's most important? So when we, when we look at this, like, what are we to be like? If you look at the, 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 the main ideologies of our day, what do they tell us? They say, you are who you say you are. Be whoever you want to be. Your heart is the throne. Literally, there's people be, being whatever they want to be, making up their own identities. The dominant philosophy and belief of the culture at large is live your truth, follow your heart. And, and then disagreement with this or suggestion that any side of other, any kind of other moral framework exists outside of the human opinion or desires, man, it, it's met with harsh contempt and rejection. Yet we see around us the results of this dominant philosophy of the day. Every day we see the brokenness of humanity around us. There's, there's this quote. Have you all ever heard this quote? The heart wants what it wants. Does anyone know where that's from? Anyone? What? <laughs> Emily Dickinson was the original author of it, but it, it was actually made famous by a guy named Woody Allen. And he used it to justify uh, uh, his relationship with his adopted daughter. So he left his wife and chose to marry his daughter. And that's what he said. He said, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. That his heart, that the, the brokenness there in that situation is evident and clear. And so largely we look at the culture, what has this resulted in? We even see contempt and division in our world to a degree that's, that's, un, that's really unbelievable. There's this book, I brought it up here because it's so great, called Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. There's a chapter in it called uh, Honor Must Resist Contempt. And in it, he opens the, the chapter with this story about, a, about him being on, this, on the New York City subway. He's a pastor in New York City. And as he's on this subway, he's riding along and this mother and her son boards. And in New York, you don't really get yourself involved in other people's business without consequences. <laughs> People like their privacy and they don't want. So this mother and her son get on board and, and she tries to get her son to sit down and kind of, you know, uh, uh, go where he needs to be. And he just was not adjusting to this environment. And they're kind of this, this he, he talks, he shares about how this power dynamic kind of ensues in the moment. And all of a sudden, he slaps his mother's hand away, and he calls her the most vulgar four-letter word that you could come up with. And the whole train, he said, was just silent. And they were expecting like some sort of retort, some sort of comeback to this from the mom or discipline, and it was just silence. 
in, in embarrassment, she hung her head. And he said he felt like in that train, whether they wanted to or not, they all had like a first row seat to the decline of Western civilization that when a, when a child can speak to his own mother with such contempt like that. I, I do not see the philosophies of our day leading to life and health and peace. I see people striving to have whatever the best possible idea they could have in order to have some utopia, but they always fail. However well-hearted they are, sons and daughters, the church, we don't need more philosophies of the day. We need the Spirit of God, and we need our Creator shepherding us and showing us what the way is. We have a Scripture. We have the Scriptures to do it. Like he's given us not only this, but the spirit of God to lead us as we go. There's a brokenness to our culture. I remember for a few sermons ago, I was saying something about TikTok and I had never had a TikTok account. So I downloaded a TikTok, a TikTok the app and I signed up <laughs> and I watched it for a bit just so I feel like I could actually say it without you know, talking about something that I've never actually experienced. And sure enough, most of it was largely just kind of benign, kind of, I was about to use a word that I tell my kids not to say, ridiculous, pointless, things that just, it was just kind of, you know, whatever, like kind of time wasting. But then every now and then there'd be a video that was just espousing something that's like so destructive and awful. And I'd go to the comments to see like, what are people saying about this? And most of the time it was just laughter, ha 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 ha, LOL, totally you know, whatever curse words, this and that, my mom's the same way. Whatever the video was about, whether it be contempt for a politician, contempt for someone in their family, contempt for men, contempt for women, contempt for feminists, whatever was on the chopping block, it was laughter and celebration. And I remember being like really grieved. It's like, gosh, like, this is the forum where God so help me, they won't, but our kids are gonna grow up in. Mine won't, in the name of Jesus. They're not getting phones till they're 25 <laughs> or 40, maybe. But it's like, there is, like, I want to I guard my children from that. Not to keep them in a bubble, but that, <sighs> I'm getting off my, I'm getting off. <laughs> About to do a parenting talk. There's a whole lot of brokenness in the world, and we see that. And then we look, and then uh, what's amazing is that oftentimes we see in these very same forums and places like this, this is where someone will maybe espouse a belief that's different from the community that they've kind of pledged allegiance to. And then they're stripped and beaten, essentially, verbally. Like we see this, this almost like you must adhere, you must be unified with us or else. There's a demand for unity from the world and from the ideologies of the world. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to not let that phase us and to go and die if we even need to for who Jesus is. But it, it doesn't take that form for us, right? It takes the form of like, what shows you watch, what you give your time to. It's much more mellow. So it's much easier for us to compromise in these things and find ourselves just participating with the culture at large. And church, I want to call us today just to another level of knowing our calling, being consecrated, 
uh, devoted to the Lord and what he's called us to. So we, we see all different kinds of unities in the world. We see people gathering together around all different kinds of groups and things. And there's just such brokenness about it. I mean, you see even the name calling that's in our, our political climate right now. No one's really listening to each other. It's all, what is name calling? It's contempt. It's, it's an attempt to take someone, name them with a despicable name, like bigot or something else, and then to take that and to dismiss their thoughts based upon that new title you've given them. Why would you care what a bigot thinks? Not a human person. The groups and unities in the world try to divide us. and They don't try. They do divide us. They divide humanity. They cause us to have contempt for other people that are made in the image of God. And us as the people of God are called not just to value one another as Christians, but we're called to live this community as an example to the world of what it's like to be in community with us. That's a steep calling, and the church hasn't always lived up to it, right? Church has failed in some big ways, and I, I believe oftentimes it's because when we let things that are most important, we let our calling get confused. Is our calling to be about abortion rights only as the church? No. Is our calling to be about certain laws enacted by the Republican Party? Because that's often what Christians are associated with, evangelicalism. Is that our calling? No. I want to hear a resounding no. I'm not saying that there's not alignment for us in any of those different things. I, I, I'm against abortion. I'm, I'm for life. But I'm also for people. I'm also for, for, for single mothers. Like I had a single mom growing up. So it's like the culture desires us to form groups and to divide and then literally to tear each other apart. And that's what we sing. But as the people of God, we're called to something else, right? If we are not unified by the Spirit of God, we're left unifying around human goals and human dreams. And church, they're too small. They're too petty. They're not the dreams of God. They're not the goals of God. They're not the things that God cares about, right? The unities of the, in the, that we find in the world will always lead back to earthly results, but the unity of the Spirit will always bring about heavenly results, something different, something we need. We need the, so Jesus' prayer. What does, he, what does he tell the disciples to pray? He says, on earth as it is in, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, literally calling down the will of God to the earth, and that's what our calling is to be as the church, is to literally give people a taste of what it is to know God and to be in community with his people, to be part of the family of God, to experience something different. So again, what does a worthy life look like? That's the world's version. What does it look like? Verse four, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Literally, I'm going to read it again slowly. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another love, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort or be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So what does a worthy life look like? I love how simple this is. Like, is it really complicated? Sometimes I think like what I'm called to is like, Donnie, be the best pastor available and build your ministry to thousands of people. And like, that's what the world's version of my job would be, right? That I hit, that I hit the numbers, that I have some other standard or goal. But for us here at Antioch, what is our goal? As the people of God here, eager to, 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 be, to, to be in union with the Spirit of God is to be completely humble and gentle with who? You. Like my chief calling is to be completely humble and gentle with you all <laughs> and to bear with you in love and in patience. And that as I eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit through what? The bond of peace. Being humble and gentle or meek and bearing with one another in love and patience is the recipe for how to have peace. And when we have peace, what do we dwell in? The unity of the... Like, there is, it's, it's so simple, it's kind of like mind-boggling a little bit. But I think it's one of the hardest things to, to possibly do. So recently, um, <laughs> recently I was mowing my lawn. Who here mows their own lawn? Admit it. If you don't, there's a few, it's a small number. I know most of you have lawns of some sort. Who here uh, pays someone to mow their lawn? That's right, that's great. No judgment from what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit of judgment, but it's okay. So, no, I was mowing my own. I used to pay someone last year. I got convicted. So, I was out there... <laughs> I was out there mowing my yard a few weekends ago. It was very hot out, like miserably hot, you know, coming against all my American desires of luxury and comfort of, an, of air conditioning. I was just sweating, super uncomfortable. And I remember just as I was mowing, I was like, why am I even doing this? I was like, is this really that important, like upkeep of my lawn? It's like so American, like my front lawn. And this is what's going through my head as I'm mowing silently. And I'm walking, mowing the lawn, and I, I, I just commit to it. I'm like, I'm going to solve this for myself right now. Why do I mow my lawn? <laughs> so I go through this process, basically. What's my calling for mowing the lawn? Like, why am I mowing my lawn? Really, I was like, what's the purpose of it? So that my house would look nice and inviting, so that when people come over, they, feel what, they would feel welcomed and invited in. And frankly, as a statement against the world, against the chaos of the world, that there's some order, that God brings order to the world. And part of our calling is to subdue the earth. I mean, it's like, I was mowing the lawn, y'all. Like, I wasn't subduing the earth, but it was, it was, it really helped me. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm gonna do from now on as I mow the lawn, I'd be like, Sub submit, you know? But it's like, that's what, but it, it helped me to think through, why am I doing this? Why is it important? Because if I don't, and I hope they never listen to this, but our neighbors, their backyard is neck high, literally. <laughs> neck, 
above, and we can't see it because our fence. But the other day I peeked over, and this isn't like a comparison thing, but I looked over because one of our kids' balls went in their yard. That ball is gone. Like, there's no way I'm going in that yard because I'll probably get chiggers for life or something. It's like not going to work for me. Terrifying place to go into, like snakes. I'm sure there's all sorts of possums waiting to eat my ankles. Just like awful things. So that's what, but that's the, that's the, op, that's the, that's the alternative. Or I let it get so long that when I do have to mow it, it's a bear. And it's exhausting. And I spend four or five hours out there. That's a little bit of what this passage is saying. There is maintenance to be done on our hearts and on our communities. And it's regular maintenance. Like it's weekly, maybe bi-weekly, maybe monthly at most. I don't care who you are. <laughs> if you're in community with another human being, there will be conflict. You guys are great, but you have a lot of weird tendencies. And so do I. Like, we all have things about ourselves that make it difficult to go through life together. But we're called to do it. And we're called to do maintenance on it. And what's the maintenance look like? It's to be humble. And to be gentle with one another. It's to be patient and long-suffering with one another. Bearing with one another in what? Love. So there are a thousand things I could talk about right now, but frankly, I just wanted to say a short word about each one of those four things, and then one final word about the importance of the unity of the Spirit, and that's it for today. My heart is that we would get a vision for the maintenance of our community, and so that when things do come up, when opportunities for conflict arise, we wouldn't look at them and hightail it and, you know, split and run because we're terrified of community, or because we're terrified of conflict, rather, this even goes back to what I preached on last time. I used a story about my son and swimming, and there is so much we're going to miss out on if we don't fight for this and fight for the unity of the Spirit. And I'm getting ahead of myself. So what, what are those? It says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's four chords to this bond of peace. I don't know if you've ever heard the passage in Ecclesiastes it says this, two are better than one. I don't have the scripture back there. So two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though many may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So as I look at this, I think here are the four cords of peace. Not even just three, four. Here are these powerful practices that if we practice as a community can literally hold the bond of peace among us, that we would have peace and that our community would represent the glory of God to the world. Amen? All right, so number one, be completely humble. What is humility? There's a thousand definitions of it based on the circumstances that you may find yourselves in or the relationship. Here, here is what it is for us in relationships. Humil and I'm sure there's others than this. This isn't the exhaustive list, nor am I the authority on humility. But a view of oneself, a view of oneself, which does not conflict with the reality of who God is and who we are to him. So I'll say it again. A view of yourself, a view of oneself that doesn't conflict with the reality of who God is and who we are to him. 
Like that I'm broken, I'm a sinner deserving death. And God has come in and reconciled me to himself. It's our calling. It's to realize that in humility and to take it into our relationships. So what does it mean? Again, humility in relationships is the maneuvering of oneself through words and actions to give our respect or admiration to others by recognizing their intrinsic God-given worth. I should have made a slide of that. Humility is the maneuvering of oneself through words and actions to give our respect or admiration to others by recognizing their intrinsic God-given worth. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. And in relationships, what is pride? It's the maneuvering of oneself through words and actions to gain, not give, to gain the respect or admiration of others by displaying our own achievements or merits. We've all been there in pride at some point, trying to maneuver, make ourselves look good, you know, so that we can like, really, <laughs> like to, to make ourselves look good, whether even physically or through speech, things that we prepare to come to sound well-spoken or whatever it may be. Like there's so many ways that we, that we maneuver for the sake of pride. And I'm, I, what the scriptures are calling us to today is maneuver in such a way, do everything possible you can to give others your respect and admiration. As, as a, as a, as a God-given, as a child of God, as someone made in the image of God. Does that make sense? Like seeing people's intrinsic worth and value. Um, Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in what? Humility. Consider others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with, the other, have, with one another, have the same mindset as who? Christ Jesus. Like our calling here is to be like Jesus. These four pieces are just a part of who Jesus is. And that's who we're called to be to maintain this unity in the bond of peace. So next one, be completely gentle or meek. What is gentleness? Or it can also be translated meekness. A lot of people think of meekness as a bad thing. But the best definition I could find of meekness is strength in control. Ever been around someone who's out of control? It's not strength even if they're strong. It's, it's, it's chaos, it's abuse, it's all sorts of things. But it's not strength and control. Uh, one one uh, commentator uh, compared it to a domesticated animal in some way. Like if you were around a lion that was like tame, it's like going around, you're like, this thing could turn and kill me, but it's like friendly and nice. It's that, it's that idea of like, wow, there's restraint here. And I'm not saying we need to be lions, but the point being... The point being, there's strength that's in control, that's not out of control. What's the opposite of this? Harshness, not gentleness. The opposite of gentleness, harshness, strength out of control. The gentleness of those who are under control of their strength. The absence of the disposition to assert your personal rights in the presence of God and of men. How often do we want to assert our personal rights because it's what I deserve? Man, there's this gentleness, this meekness that ought to mark our interactions with one another. And what's beautiful is uh, the commentator John Stott says this. He says, humility and meekness or gentleness form a natural couple. For the meek man thinks as little of his personal claims as the humble man of his personal merits. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> like, I want to be that. For the meek man thinks as little of his personal claims, who he claims to be, 
as the humble man thinks of his personal merits. They're thinking of the other. They were found together, he continues, in perfect balance in the character of the Lord Jesus. We are to be like Jesus. What does it say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? It says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Next one up, be patient. What does it mean to be patient? It means waiting without complaint, right? Is that it though? Like what if I give my son like a, a pack of gummy bears and tell him to wait patiently until we leave to go somewhere fun? He'll, he'll be happy to wait as long as he's supplied with gummy bears. What is patience then? What does it mean to be patient? When is patience admirable? It's when we're waiting and it's uncomfortable. It's when we're waiting and we're not having a good time. It's when we're waiting and it's painful. Waiting without complaint, despite uncomfortable or even painful circumstances, because this is what God has done for us. God waits for us, church. And he did it even through the cross. It's long-suffering. Another definition is long-suffering toward aggravating people. (laughs) Patience is long-suffering toward aggravating people. Are you an aggravating person? Sometimes I am. You can ask my wife. I am sometimes aggravating. Philosophers call this, uh, this, there's a predicament in patience. They call it the egocentric predicament. What does that mean? It means it's the natural human condition of being immediately aware of of only your thoughts, (laughs) of only your thoughts and feelings. Like naturally, are you aware of the person next to you's thoughts and feelings? No. What do you have to do? You have to ask, right? You have to show some humility and say, hey, consider their needs more important than the other and say, hey, what is, what's going on in your heart? How are you feeling? But our natural predisposition is that we feel our own thoughts and feelings and therefore, oh, it's hard to wait when you feel that stuff. You don't put yourself in other people's shoes, right? All right, and then finally, bearing with one another in love, this mutual tolerance, which no group of people can live without. And tolerance today often means something else, but what we're talking about here is not tolerance for tolerance's sake, but in love for the sake of the love of God, that we tolerate sin even in people in order that they might know God and love him, in order that they might meet Jesus Christ, that we would tolerate even people of the world being in our midst so that we might show them the way of Jesus, tolerating people in our midst that are difficult in life group, that aren't perfect, that aren't fully formed into the image of God in order that they might be formed into the image of God, right? It's a long game. That's what it is. So even in Luke 23, it says this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Is when Jesus was being crucified and that's his prayer to God, that God would forgive these people that are crucifying him because they don't know what they're doing. Man, the level of tolerance that Jesus had for those around him to say, God, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing right now. And that's what we're called to be. All right. So that's, those are the four bonds of peace. And if we can just do those four simple things, right? Like that's, that's, a, that's, that's deep heart work. And it starts with each of us individually in our union with God. 
It starts with our relationship with God, and then it starts with us coming together to do relationship together as the family of God in life group. And, and here on Sunday morning, but primarily in life group. If you're not in a life group, get in a life group. It's where you're formed into the image of God. It's where we get to be one with God, be, be in the presence of God, and be made like Jesus so that the world would know who Jesus is. That's what happens. And so my final question that Paul answers here, he says, what is the, or why is the unity of the Spirit so important? So we want to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of what? Peace. And we do that through humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love. So that's our structure for how we accomplish this. But it's not just on our own. That What are we trying to do by doing that? We're maintaining the unity of what? The Spirit of God. Why is it so important? Paul goes on in Ephesians 4, verse 4. He says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what's the most common word in that? One. He's saying there's not multiple. It's not what you think and what you think and what you think. We need someone to bring us together, and that's the Spirit of God. It can't be me. It can't be Joe. It can't be some other pastor. Like, it's got to be the Spirit of God leading us together as a people. Us being in union with God and in union with one another. We're a body made up of many members, but there is only one head of this body, and that's Christ, right? And, and how, how are we in union with Christ? Through the Spirit of God. Like, he, he, Jesus went to be at the right hand of the Father, and he's given us his Spirit and now through the Spirit of God, we literally have access, confidence to approach the Father that this is who we are. And we began this year by dropping our oars and surrendering to Jesus. And ultimately, church, that's what we're still doing even now. We began this year, you know, dropping ours. God, would you take it? Would you take the lead? And that's what we're still doing. There, I, when I was young, uh, in elementary school, we used to take field trips to the symphony. And I loved it. I was like, I don't know what it was about it, but I had never been before. And we went probably four or five times over the course of my elementary years. And I was just in awe of all of these people playing. Is there music? Have you ever seen The Rain? By Creedence Clearwater Revival. My phone, for some reason, keeps playing random songs. Please stop it, Siri. Um, anyways, I was like, I hear music. I hear music. I grew up going to the symphony and I loved it. It was all these musicians, like how are they doing this and, and being all in sync at the same time? It was just the most beautiful sound, I felt like, hearing them all play in unison. And I remember later in life thinking back on that and I was able to find the same quotes by some blogger, but she says this, most importantly, she's talking about a conductor and how a symphony stays in alignment with one another. She says, most importantly, a conductor, you know, the guy with the sticks who's doing that, serves as a messenger for the composer. So there's a composer that's written this music and what it's supposed to sound like, the emotions it's supposed to give us as we listen to it, what it, the beauty that it's supposed to, 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 to declare to us. There's this composer that's spent a lot of time like making this beautiful thing, and for us, that composer is God. And then this conductor is meant to understand, says this, to understand the music 
and convey it through gesture so transparently that the musicians in the orchestra understand it perfectly. So we have this composer named God, and he's written this beautiful music as what life is supposed to look like for us. And then he has this conductor, the Holy Spirit of God, that we're meant to keep our eyes set on. And he's directing our movements. He's saying, louder over here, play, play your, play your song over here. He's saying, you know, flutes, I'm not, a, I'm not a musician. I don't even know what I'm talking about. But it's like, I've seen him do it before and it gets louder. It's like he's directing them and he's creating emphasis where he wants to create emphasis and he's leading them. And his job is to do that. And listen, those musicians can then transmit a unified vision of the music out to the audience, out to the world. Like God is our composer, the Holy Spirit is our conductor, and our job is to have our eyes set on him. And who does the Holy Spirit reveal to us? Jesus. He reveals the person of Jesus that we can relate to, that had flesh and bone just like we have. So why is the unity of the Spirit important? Otherwise, it's just going to be madness, church. Everyone doing their own thing and what they think is most important. So if we want to partner with God, I mean, if we want to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, you know, if our prayer this year is, Lord, make us one with one another and one, and one with you so that the world would know who you are, if that's our prayer, like it comes back to this, our vision, if that's our vision, then man, we have to have our eyes set on the unity of the spirit. And we do that in the way that we treat one another, primarily, first and foremost, because if we don't have that unity, if we don't maintain it, then we don't have that unity. There's no way we can, dis we can play the music that God wants us to play. Does this make sense? How primary and of first importance it is and how we treat one another. Like it's, I don't know, I don't know how else to elevate it any higher than what God does. Like to say, the way you treat one another affects whether or not I lead you, if I dwell with you, because I'm here conducting, but if you're not looking at me, you're gonna miss it, right? So there's not fear or heaviness on this. The beauty of this is that this is God's symphony. He's the one that's written the music. He's, and the Holy Spirit is the one that's conducting. All we need to do is just keep our eyes focused on him, and we do that together. We do it in life group, and we do it through the bond of peace. Right, church? Um, if I could have the band come up, and if you have kids in kids' ministry, I went long. So if you can step out to go grab them, I want to, uh, I'm tempted just to close the service, but I think most importantly, when we respond to the Spirit of God, and when we respond to his leading, and when we do it in worship as the community of God, there's things that God has for each one of you. It may be a relationship in your life that's kind of broken or where there's tension in it. And you need to go to that person in the room even now and begin to talk it through or pray, ask God, or come up to the front and ask for, for whether it's you need to repent or whatever it may be. Then we can have our prayer and prophetic team come forward as well. God wants to lead us. And if we don't have unity among us, then man, we can't do it. And so his call to us is not just to live a life of humility and a life of patience and a life of meekness and a life of love and bearing with one another. That's also to our ultimate joy. Because what is it like to live in a community that lives like that? It's heaven on earth, folks. So I'm gonna pray and uh, we're gonna worship. And whatever you feel like the spirit of God is leading you in or prompting your heart, come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray with you.
Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, God, and for how much you've loved us. Thank you that your spirit is our conductor. Thank you that we don't have to conduct ourselves. We don't have to lead ourselves, God, but you are leading us and you will lead us. And so, Father, we just say thank you. Thank you for leading us. And we ask that even now as we pray and as we spend time worshiping in your presence, God, would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, as we set our eyes on you, would you direct us? God, whether it's something we need to repent of, whether it's a relationship we need to begin, take the first step of restoring. God, whether it's some, an attitude of our heart we need to repent for, God, whether it's uh, forgiveness towards someone that we need to give in our heart, overlooking an offense, whatever it may be, God, would you speak to our hearts those things that are coming in between our unity in the Spirit, And Father, we just declare together to keep our eyes fixed on you as you lead us. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand as we worship.